Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks guys. Talk to you soon. Welcome to the show. I'm Travis Chappell, and I chat with some of the world's top business influencers, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in order to crack the code of networking. I believe that who you know is more important than what you know, and that your relationships ultimately determine the person that you become. So if you want to learn the new way of connecting, if you want to fill your network with quality people and skyrocket your results, then you're in the right place, because this is the Build Your Network Podcast. Maurice, what's up, man? Thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Hey, Travis, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Yes, sir. Let's go ahead and jump in here, build some context for those listening. Okay. I find your story extremely fascinating. And you know what? I'm not even going to set it up. I just want, I want you to start talking here. So let's go ahead and start all the way back. Talk to me childhood. Let's, let's put you back in like seven, eight-year-old Maurice. What was life like for you back then? Talk us through some of the context there so that we can get a little bit more background for the rest of your story. I was born in Jamaica and stayed there for the first 12 years of my life. My mother had in fact, left us, that is her three children, my older brother, Devon, myself, and my younger sister, Alicia, in the care of our grandmother. And that's because she had an opportunity to come to the United States and make a life, get some money together. It wasn't She couldn't bring us with her. She had to first work and prove herself and become a citizen and all that. So that took 10 years. Wow. And in that 10-year time span, we were with my grandmother, who has since passed on and raised us. And, you know, it was tough. It was tough being away yeah. from her. It was, it was poverty. I mean, a lot of people see Jamaica as sort of island paradise kind of thing, but yeah. that's for the tourists. Yeah. Uh, that, we were living in big cities. only. Yeah. Right. Yes. You know, it, it's Montego Bay. It's, it's Ocho <laughs> Rios. It's Negril. That's not where I grew up. I grew up in Kingston, hard knocks, tough neighborhoods all around. And so it was tough going until we finally got 
to the United States and live with my mother again when I was 12 years old. So it definitely seems like your grandmother was the one who really raised you in that sense with your mom being gone and dad out of the picture, right? My dad was in the picture in that he was, he'd visit us the same with the same frequency almost as my mother. Uh, he was also living in the U.S. trying to make a life for himself okay. as well. They were not together, but they tried to stay connected to us. And so, yes, my grandmother was the rock. I mean, she had all the principles. The thing is that she was 64 when she started raising us. Mm. And she had already had seven children of her own. So you have to imagine a woman who's gone through all that and then decide she's going to take on three kids, two of whom are babies. I was two. My sister was only seven months old. So it was really hard for my grandmother, but she just stuck it through. Yeah, seems like it. It seems like she did a fantastic job of coming in and filling that role again, which like you said, at that age to take that on and being willing to do it the right way, you know, huge, huge props to grandma there for sure. Absolutely. She was a hero. Yeah. Talk to me about like your free time at that age in like elementary school, those younger ages there when both parents are in the U.S., and you're being raised by your grandma at home, what would you guys do in your free time, your spare time, after school and stuff? After school, we would play like crazy. Back then, Jamaica didn't have too much television. In fact, television came on at the ungodly hour of 6 p.m. <laughs> uh, so you got to imagine, uh, we have two TV stations that's coming on at 6 p.m. for a little kid. That's like... And then the first thing that came on was the news. Ooh, yeah. So it, it was <laughs> like, what the heck? So we ended up, we played a lot of board games, we went outside, as you can well imagine, we, we played soccer, we call it football in Jamaica. We played cricket, we threw rocks at each other, we played yeah. in gullies, we went to the water. We just had an, a pretty wild outdoor existence. Yeah, right. But this is really where you got your love of, of games from, though, right? Like you, you Yes. And lots yes. of Jamaica, A lot of the islands, actually, very big game cultures, board game cultures, and things like dominoes, Sure. Much more things like checkers. But then we just had that affinity for those types of games. So chess, even though I didn't really learn it in Jamaica, I did learn the rules in Jamaica, but I didn't get into it in Jamaica. I got into it in Brooklyn. But it married well with what our culture was about. Yeah, sure. So talk to me now the transition between living in Jamaica, like in what you were saying, in, in rough areas in Jamaica growing up and having that culture where your grandma's you know, taking the role of your immediate parents because both your parents are out in the U.S. And then the day comes, right? The day comes where your mom can actually come back and take you guys with her to the U.S. What was that transition like? I mean, she is your mom and you know that she's your mom and she visits you and she sends you stuff and you guys are writing letters back and forth the whole time, right? And when you get back into that world where like your mom literally becomes your mom again, that had to be kind of an interesting transition for you, especially in a completely brand new culture, a completely brand new country. Can you walk me through what that was like for you? You make it sound scary, and it was. I mean, <laughs> the transition from Jamaica to the U.S. was absolutely radical. Mm. You're coming out of two different cultures, almost different mindsets, if you will. And for me to be with this relative stranger who I know is my mother, right. but who hasn't brought me up in her way, hasn't had the intimacy that a, a mother would have with a child, showing you homework, reading books to you, hugging you when you fall down and hurt something. It was almost abstract, mm. the idea of being her child, even though I was well aware that she was very much my mother and that I loved her. Mm -hmm. You add to that Brooklyn culture. Yeah. And I'm talking about BK back in the day. I'm not talking <laughs> about today's Brooklyn with lattes, you know, Starbucks and, 
and uh, Ikea. I mean, no. <laughs> Brooklyn back in the day was even pre-Biggie Smalls, if you can imagine, you know, yeah. Jay-Z growing up in, in that environment. And it was Brownsville. So Brownsville is where Mike Tyson is from. I always make this joke that Mike Tyson had to get out of Brownsville because it was so rough. <laughs> it was and, for him, yeah. Yeah, and, and it was hardcore. Yeah. It was a big adjustment. It was dealing with stuff that I just was not used to. And, and, oh, and by the way, the weather. Times of your life, too. I mean, to be 12, you're, I mean, that's a pretty moldable time. You know what I mean? That's not like a time where you're coming into your self-confidence. That's like the most unaware, like, you know, self-deprecating time that you have in your life is when you're, you know, junior high starting to make that weird transition to becoming an adult. That's one of your most vulnerable times to go through that type of life-changing experience, you know? Absolutely. And one of the worst things you want to be in that setting is different. Yeah. And I was different. I was coming from an island nation, you know, jumping into the U.S. And the sense, I mean, there was a sense in the neighborhoods that we were worse than, you know, okay, we're all black, but you guys are coming from on the banana boat, as mm. it was literally said, you're coming on the banana boat to come to America. And the kids treated you differently. You know, it took ribbings, took teasings from that. Yeah, I got to say, I did meet some kids who were also like me. So I was able to get with an immigrant population and get comfortable with them. We lived in that kind of neighborhood. And I also made friends in the African-American population as well. So it was, it was all good. I caught on very quickly, yeah. as you can well imagine, yeah, within a couple of like, years. It seems like your education was not one of those things that was behind at all, even more so being ahead of the curve than a lot of people that you were testing against in a similar age group coming into the States. Is that right? It was ridiculous how bad, how behind the schools here were than where I was coming out of. I mean, I was a year ahead of all the kids. They were doing stuff in math. And I'm like, what? This is my first math class? I had to go back home and tell my mother, you know, they're they're doing stuff that I did back in Jamaica. I need to be in a more advanced grade. But the guidance counselor wouldn't put me in a more advanced grade because of my age. But she put me in the best class in the school. I was just like following along my educational track. So it just went to show how badly uh, kids here were being served by the educational system. Kids in certain neighborhoods, let's put it that way. Yeah, so you went into a situation like that and then came out thriving even more so. But I'm really interested to hear your origin into the chess world because this is, and I kind of communicated this with you when we were kind of going back and forth on this interview, is that chess was a huge part of my life growing up and I really enjoyed playing it. And I feel like I grew up in a kind of a a different way than most people do, especially considering my age and and how I'm 27 and and what most people's experience would be in America growing up. But I, I grew up in a very small religious type bubble community. And so like my time wasn't spent doing a lot of the other things a lot of other teenagers are doing. I was just doing random stuff that I like enjoyed and I would play guitar or I would play basketball or pick up some random things. And and we had chess tournaments every year and started getting into chess and thought that was fun. And so I'm curious to hear where you also started getting into that because obviously not something that is just generically widespread that everybody plays chess because that's the opposite of the truth, right? Oh yeah, no, it wasn't like that at all. There was a friend of mine in Brooklyn Technical High School, where two years after coming here, I ended up in Brooklyn Tech. And he was playing chess, and I saw him playing. He wasn't quite my friend yet. So just imagine, I see this kid playing. I was always good at games, pretty smart kid, and I just thought I was going to crush this guy. And I knew the rules of the game, and so let's just play. And I was competitive as ever. My family is extremely competitive. My, my sister and brother ended up being world champion uh, boxers and kickboxers. So wow. I got this hardcore family who was very driven and, and we think we're just, you know, be hot stuff. <laughs> and I played him and he killed me. And I was not keen on it, but I didn't think anything of it 
until I was in the school library and I saw a book on chess. I didn't go searching for it. It just happened to be there, might just the hand of destiny. I see the book, I open it up, and I think I'm going to use this book and go kick his ass. That's how it's going to work. I read the book, I come back, and he crushes me again. And it turns out he had read that book, a bunch of other books, that he was heavily into chess. But I wanted a piece of him, so we just started playing all the time until I finally beat him. And then we just like lived and breathed chess. But it was and it was just you and that group of us. Okay, it was me, him, and a few other kids. And then then there were kids in the chess club as well. He he asked me to come to the chess club. Just a small core group of kids who were into chess. Yeah, and the rest of the kids didn't matter to me. Why do you think that that was the thing that you held on to as like a life thing, right? Because there's a lot of things that we try out and we test as kids and and I'm insanely competitive myself and that's definitely a driver for any of the things that I do well is I just wanted to beat everybody. (laughs) But there's obviously a bunch of things that you were doing at the time and not every single one of them ended up being the thing that you actually like dedicated your life to. Why was that the thing that grabbed you so much? It's funny, chess finds you, right? Mm -hmm. If you said you play chess, and chess is that kind of game. It's been around for 1,500 years, and it's a little bit like a virus, except it's not looking necessarily for everybody who's going to really become obsessed with it. There's certain people's brains work a, a certain kind of way, and it says, okay, I got a, I got a live one here, yeah. and I was a live one. You know, it's like, and, and man, this is all I wanted to think about, all I wanted to do. The game is so fascinating. It's a battle. It's, you know, you got this battlefield with rooks and kings and queens and bishops, knights and pawns, yeah. and you're trying to crush the other person using your brain. Yeah. And that's something that's attractive to me. I love to solve puzzles. I love to play those kinds of games. I love sure. strategy. And it just married well with my personality. How has your pursuit of excellence in chess helped sharpen other things that you do? Well, chess is, it's an intellectual like discipline masking as this game. Mm. So the greatness of chess is, is it's about making amazing decisions or at least good ones on every single move. Yeah. You have to stop, think, analyze, calculate, try to look a little bit ahead at some possibilities, figure out what your opponent is trying to do. So get inside their minds, become a bit more empathetic to their cause, if Mm. you will, because anything you do, you know, they're going to try to smash. It's about patience. It's about diligence. It's about not getting cocky. It's not getting too arrogant, which, you know, I've been known to be cocky (laughs) and arrogant. Yeah, sure. Uh, It's just this incredibly formative experience. Yeah. If you let it be that you could just let it be a game, but if you really get into the discipline of it, then you realize that it's so much more and it has absolutely transformed the way I approach things, the way I see the world. Yeah, definitely. For sure. The way that you even think is influenced by the way that you have to learn how to think by being a good chess player. It teaches you a whole new strategy on how to operate your life and how to always think a few moves ahead on in your career and in your relationships and your family and always be thinking about what's the end result? How do we think more long-term about this? How are we getting, you know, are we positioning ourselves right now to be in the position we want to be in the next few moves here? You know what I mean? Like, what do I want the board to look like? There's so many things that you can take away from that. But Marisa, I want to get a little bit back more into your story specifically here. In high school, you, you find this kid, you start playing and now and you get be a part of the chess club. But I remember you basically, there was, there was this time where you were formidable in that arena and you had, you know, games that you were playing with, all, with these kids in this club. But then you started going outside of that club to get even better than all those kids were. And that's when you would start coming back in and basically, 
you became the guy in the group that everybody wanted to beat because you were studying it so much even outside of that group. So talk to me about what you perceive as being the key element behind anybody pursuing a world-class path. Even if it, you know, taking it, it's chess, it's you know, music, it's podcasting, it's being an author. What is it that made you, you know, go pursue that next level of success in that field? I think anyone who wants to be world-class, there are certain elements that have to be in their toolkit. The biggest one is to be a humble learner. Mm. There is so much to learn in the craft and you've got to pursue every element of that craft, of knowledge that you can use to be better at what you do. That's just key. Without it, you got nothing. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Another thing is to look at the best in your field. People who have been successful, they've done it certain ways. You don't want to imitate. You want to emulate. Mm. You are going to be yourself in the end. You're going to have to do your own thing, your own style, your own way of forging ahead because you have a very individual DNA. You Mm. have a separate makeup from everybody else. So you're going to have to follow your own path, but that doesn't mean that you don't learn from the masters. And that's something that's great in chess because we have so many masters, so many grandmasters at the game that we can study carefully and call their secrets, learn what they're all about, what they do, why they are as good as they are at what they do. Following the masters, absolutely necessary. The other major element, or another major element, is a willingness to fail. Losing is learning. It's going to happen. You can't be perfect. And I know of so many people who were very gifted early on or had all that passion all the desire. And when they hit the wall, 
when it wasn't as easy, when they weren't beating everybody else, because now they were on a level where everybody was good. Yeah. That's when they said, this is not fun anymore. I'm not winning as often. Maybe you have a bad day and lose all your games. The tenacity to keep going, no matter what that wall is, you're going to break down the wall, even though it may take quite some time. One of my favorite authors, George Leonard, wrote a book called Mastery. It's one of my favorite books. Very small book, but it speaks to this great idea of loving the plateau. Mm. The place you're going to be most often is at the plateau. People want to have a 45 degree incline, right? They just want to go and I'm getting better, I'm getting better over time. That's not how it works. You get stuck on the plateau for such a long time, you get impatient, but that work you're doing, you're actually improving subconsciously at the subliminal level, you just don't realize it. And then at some point the breakthrough happens and there's a leap, quantum leap ahead. Then you're back at a new plateau. Yeah. So if you don't embrace the plateau where you stay the longest before these quantum leaps, you never can get to the leap. Yeah. And so I think champions are those that know that it's more about process than result mm. and loving that path, loving the road, embracing what you're doing and all the dirty work that's involved, all the pain that's involved because you have a goal in mind. Yeah, it's that deep, deep level of commitment, right? Which is something that you obviously were for sure mastering in that portion of your life. At what point along this journey, because I know you started getting a lot into chess when you were in high school and started winning games against people that thought you shouldn't have been winning at that point. You clearly were on that road to mastery at that time already. At what point was it a goal of yours to become a grandmaster? I would say my major leap took place not in high school, more in college. College for me was where I got deep into another chess club at my college. And then I started going out and meeting African-Americans in Brooklyn who were playing chess all the time, called them the Black Bear School. These guys were vicious. These guys, we went to the parks, we went to their homes. I mean, they were vicious. They played a lot of blitz chess. And one thing I realized was that they really were very much insular. They were about themselves. They're about playing against each other, beating each other. And that's not what I wanted. I wanted to become better than this group, than Brooklyn, right? Than just, right? than just New York. I started going to chess clubs in the city in Manhattan. There's where I started meeting international masters, international grandmasters, and I wanted to whoop on them. I mean, <laughs> I, mean I was reading in the books, you know, all those books I was reading, I was reading about grandmasters, and then I go to the clubs and they're actual grandmasters. You know, that was like going to, I know it may sound weird, but that was like going to the top of some, like some mountain, you know, in Tibet and yeah. meeting the true gurus, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yes. I was <laughs> like, oh my God, there's a real one. Right. And, and uh, the fact that I was good enough to compete, but not good enough to beat yet really spurred me on. And I just, I just desperately wanted to get to that level. And how long did it take you from the time that you realized this was something that I want to accomplish until you actually were able to accomplish that? Oh, years, 14, 15 years. I went a circuitous path, I will say, because I started coaching chess as a side job and then it became a passion of mine for a while. And that really pushed me away from my pursuit, that rigorous pursuit, because I, I was busy making a living. Then I got married and had a child and that really changed things as well. And so I had to make a living and chess wasn't it. Playing chess, that is, wasn't it. So I really had to dive into coaching. It wasn't until I had the opportunity after several years to be able to first get a sponsor. That was a really important turn in the story. And then pursue chess only. 
was I able to get it done? And it took me a very short time after that. I'd been studying chess the whole way, loving it, being a part of it. But to really become a grandmaster, you have to be on that path. And yeah. you have to really focus on it. And that's when it happened. For those listening who may not know like the different tiers or you know how the chess world operates, can you kind of give a brief explanation of that? The best example may come from martial arts. Uh, you know, you people get black belts. They're the senseis. They're the instructors. And then you have degrees, first degree, second degree, third degree, all the way up to 10th Dan, as they call it. And so grandmasters are the top of the food chain. Grandmaster is the highest title you can get in chess. The world champion is a grandmaster. So it's Kind of, if you will, think professional sports like basketball, Mm -hmm. for example, where you make it to the pros. Now you are a professional player. You may not be LeBron James. You may not be James Harden, elite of the elite players, but you are now in the pros and you belong. Got it. But the thing that's a little bit different from something like martial arts or, or pro sports or something is that to be a grandmaster, you actually have to go beat some of the people that are already have that titles. Is that correct? That title and the international master title as well, which is right below the grandmaster title. Okay. And we have it in very specific competitions. So instead of you being drafted like you would in sports, for example, you actually have to go one-on-one in tournaments against those players and prove over a number of games, not just one player, but several of them that you can hang. So again, in our example of pro sports, if I put a lineup of LeBron James and James Harden and Steph Curry, Paul George, right? Just throw them out and say, you go play those guys. Tell me your score. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) one-on-one. When you're done, tell me your score. And if you come back and say, man, I didn't win one. It's like, well, you're not ready yet, son. (laughs) But if you came in like, you know, 50%, like you did what? (laughs) Against those guys? So that's really how it works in chess. To me, just so much more cutthroat. And uh, that's what makes the title so cool to me is that like it proves that you aren't just who people said that you could be. It proves that you actually are that person or else you would not have been able to earn that title. What are some things that we can take away from chess? And obviously you're a chess coach and you help you know other kids get into chess and, and become masters at it as well. So what are some things that maybe somebody listening right now that hasn't thought about chess in a way of becoming like a personal development tool or a sharpening tool? What are some ways that people can start getting into the game without feeling just like a total fire hydrant, you know, drink in terms of being overwhelmed by it? You know, the great thing about chess is that you can come in at every level. There's so many different ways to love the game. And online, it's better than ever. If I had all the tools that people have now online, I might have become a good chess player. (laughs) I mean, it's really just crazy how easy it is now. You go to chess.com or chess24.com, and there's just so many great resources for the beginning player to just get into it. Their videos, their apps, it's just any way you want to do it. Do puzzles, just to any degree. It's wonderful. We're living in the golden age of chess right now. Mm. Even chess entertainment has taken off in a great way and people are streaming on Twitch. I mean, you could just, you literally can get it any which way you want. As far as the things that you learn from chess, and there's so many things we mentioned already. One of the biggest things for me, and I think one of the, the most key things and one of the hardest, most difficult things is trying to understand another person's mind and the way it works. Mm. When we play chess, we don't just play the board, we play the player. And when you do that, you're at the next level. And I think that's the case for every profession or for a lot of professions anyway. The idea that you want to understand what another person's all about. Mm. And 
once you get inside their heads and you can address the situation whichever way you wish, right? And with, with better understanding, with more compassion, with more empathy. Yeah. We see that really dog us in our political life mm. because we have groups that just don't even want to hear what the other person has to say, don't want to know where they're coming from and just ready to attack instantly the, the moment words come out of their mouths. You treat life like that, you lose so much richness. And I think it's great with chess because I can't do that in a chess game. Yeah. I cannot pretend that the other person's ideas are bad as soon as they play them. I've got to be like, whoa, this person is smart. They're a genius. They're coming at me with real ideas. Right. And that's how you should treat your life. And it's not just let's say your political life. It's not just your work life. It's your personal life as well. I mean, the person you're speaking to, whether it be your, your spouse, your child, your best friend, all these people have ideas as well. And your biggest challenge is to learn what they think. What you think, you know it already. I mean, that's boring as ever. You don't have to communicate what you think. Okay, it's important that you do that, but it's much more important that you get inside the other person's head, really parse out what they're about every time you act. And I love that about chess. We have to do that in a chess game. It's always we, not just me. Yeah, there's all, you always have to look at what the other person is doing and try your best to understand what they're thinking, where they're coming from, so you can act accordingly. And that's such a huge, huge lesson for any one of us in life, especially for the polarization, you know, the polarizing times that we're in as a country is definitely a message that needs to be spread way more than the, um, the hate that a lot of people are experiencing at this moment. So I appreciate Very you. Very key. For everything too, and, and it's something I talk about in the sales world a lot is, is how important it is to get into, inside of the mind of the person that you're talking to and to actually be able to solve problems for that person and have the empathy to understand where they're coming from. All of that helps you to be able just to just work with people better, communicate better, which is obviously something that every single one of us has to do no matter what field that we're in. We're, we're all in the people business at the end of the day. So yeah, I really, really appreciate you bringing that up, Maurice. Another point I'll bring up just I think is a huge point, very difficult point to inculcate well in our culture is embracing failure. Like that's so huge for the learning process. Mm. I've got to be able to make mistakes in a protected environment where I know I'm not going to be blasted for it. I'm not going to be hyper-criticized. I'm not going to be made to look like a fool. Instead, I'm just going to be able to take the lessons and learn and grow. But now we have this ridiculous bubble that says you fail and we are going yeah, to tweet yeah. the mess out of you and you're <laughs> going to be shamed to the hilt on every social media platform we could find. Yep. And that's terrifying. That's terrifying because it means that you, you stultify the growth of a culture, Sure, right? Yeah. It, it can only go in ways that are positive and successful. I'm not taking any real chances to look stupid in front of you because you're going to just shame me. I'm going to grow a certain way. And when individuals are afraid to do that, it's reflected in the greater culture. And the culture becomes, in my opinion, a lot more infantile because it's not allowed as a people now you're talking about. You're right. not allowed to fail. You're not allowed to mess up and be embraced be wholesomely criticized. It's a lesson that we learn in chess that allows us to flourish, that our failures are important to our growth, but it's not something we see in our society today. That is so true. You're not given the space to be able to fail like that without being shamed about it for indefinite amount of time in the future. And now um, it's indefinite. Now, <laughs> now it's like, it lasts forever. People just right. Google it and 
Like you're, you're not back. even allowed Guess to do, do anymore because you have messed up in this one thing. Like, sorry, you're done forever. You're done. Yeah, Terrifying. Very dangerous place to be for sure. If you can't ever, can't ever make mistakes, then you never take that next bold action step. You never try to do something outside of your zone of comfort because you're just always so afraid of getting canceled by the next person who decides that you did the thing that's worthy of being canceled and therefore you can never come back type of a thing. So such an important thing to keep in mind. Maurice, I know we're kind of closing in on the end of our time together, which is a bummer. I'd love to chat for a lot longer than this. If you could really give us a, a couple of tips on how to make decisions in life, and I know that this is this again kind of stems back from your experience playing chess, because I do feel like that is one thing that the game really gives you is kind of a strategy for decision making, not just you know a way to to pass the time or you know sharpen your ability to make those decisions, but it's more like a philosophy of how to go about making decisions. Because really all we are is a sum of all the decisions that we've made up to this point in life, right? And our version of ourselves in 10 years from now will be a sum of the decisions that we make in the next 10 years. And so those decisions that we make are obviously very crucial. Do you have a system or something that you've learned that you can help out me and and the listeners with? There is no system that is first. There is no system. There is no sequence. Every situation calls for its own process or it has its own nuances, but there are guidances. You know, one thing we learned in chess is that you need to look for the exceptions as well as the rules because mm. you may be in a novel situation and it needs a novel approach. And so don't get fixed or fixated on some exact procedure. But there are things that we know. There are things that, that chess teaches that's really not a mystery to most people. They just don't do it, right? So when we say, think about the other person first, yeah, yeah, sure. I'll do that. <laughs> yeah, no, you don't, right? Most people are just like, no, knee jerk. I'm going to be thinking about myself first, and then I'll see how I incorporate the other person's opinion in what I'm thinking about. Uh, when we say stop, be patient, take a look at the situation, analyze, everybody knows that, but yet people still jump in feet first. Mm-hmm. Chess is really a training ground for the principles that your mom probably told you, but you're not yeah. doing, right? You're not doing automatically. And so you really need to dial back and recognize those greater qualities that are timeless principles. We say that chess is a metaphor for life, but chess is a world metaphor. The reason why chess has lasted this long is because it so well metaphorically marries with human culture. It speaks to everything we know is is right, everything we know is good about decision-making, thinking, being patient, being determined, embracing your failures, thinking about the other person, all those principles that, that we try to inculcate in our children and and try to develop in ourselves, these are the principles that chess teaches and it's why it's lasted so long. It's why when people think chess, they think, oh yeah, this game is strategic. It's important, it's important to learn. So I think we know all these things, but the thing is to develop these qualities within yourself so that they can become more automatic as you make decisions. And as you live your life. As we have everything wrapped up here, Maurice, who are some people that you follow, some, some world-class individuals that you follow that maybe keep you inspired to, to continue pursuing that, that world-class venture that you're on? I follow so many people, or I should say I've, I've read and been inspired by so many people. I don't necessarily follow on social media as much, but I like diving into books, biographies. I will say that Tim Ferriss is somebody who was big in my life, certainly a great guru and he just brings ideas together in so many places in so many ways and uh and so i was really honored to be interviewed by him given that i was following this guy for so many years so yeah i would think tim ferris is big but to me history is full Mm. of the great masters you will find your own but for me uh particularly great african-americans like jackie robinson 
Arthur Ashe was huge for me to read his story. Frederick Douglass, if we go further back, certainly the civil rights era greats, Dr. King and Malcolm X, those people were extremely important to me. But I also look at sports stars as well. Anyone who is trying to be great at anything, I want to steal from, and business leaders yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, as long as you're great at something and pursuing that greatness, I'll be reading about you. I, <laughs> I want to know the lessons and the experiences you've had in your life that I can continue to, to borrow and steal from so that I can be better in mine and, and hopefully also share with people in my life. Well, Maurice, you are definitely world-class. We really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing with us a little bit more around your pursuit of uh, being world-class in the chess arena. And for those of you listening, really, thank you so much for tuning in. We will catch you guys next time. Peace out and stay world-class. Well, that's it for today's show. If you want more advanced networking strategies, as well as an instant network upgrade, then consider partnering with my BYN Inner Circle Mastermind. There are already dozens of high quality entrepreneurs in the group. There's dozens of video lessons on networking. There's monthly calls, there's accountability crews and more, all for the low investment of just 99 bucks a month. So head over to byninnercircle.com to jump in. That's byninnercircle.com. Thanks so much for joining us on today's show. We'll see you next time. Remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.